This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Lauren Godwin, Danielle Robb, Jane, Sandy Ellen, Sierra Tucker, and Carly Park. Thank you all so much for being a part of making the show and donating. And for any new listeners, all the names that I just read are new patrons of the sleepy podcast on patreon.com which is a great site where you can go on and support creators of the work that you like so you can go onto patreon.com slash sleepy radio and donate a dollar a month two dollars a month five dollars a month gets you access to a special patreon poetry feed where i read poetry readings and send them to you exclusively twice a month just for donating so if the show does anything for you, maybe consider going to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art is by Gracie Kanan. 
Tonight really is a big episode. Um, episode 77. But more than that, uh, it is the last episode that I'll be recording from my home in Vermont. Where I've been recording from for the last year. Uh, I really have been planning a trip for a long time. And have been working on this little tiny home uh, while recording the show this summer. And finally, everything is ready for me to hit the road. It's so hard to believe, you know, like you always want this kind of liberation and um, kind of doing what you want and wandering, I guess, not completely aimlessly, but just wandering for you and no one else. And, and then it happens. And it is wild how shocking that liberation can really be once it gets to you. Well, that's where I'm at right now while recording tonight's episode, Billy Bud by Herman Melville. Um, it's really weird to be at this place. It feels like I'm kind of at the precipice. And uh, this copy that I'm reading right now fantastic little copy of Billy Bud um, that was given to me by someone that I'm going to miss a lot. So, yeah, I'm really happy to be signing off from Vermont with Billy Bud. And don't worry, the show will be continuing weekly, as always. <laughs> It'll just be, you know, one night you're going to hear a recording from maybe somewhere in Western Mass., and then maybe in the hills of Appalachia, and maybe on the shores of Tybee Island outside Savannah, Georgia, or New Orleans, or somewhere in the middle of Texas, maybe even Montana next year. Who knows? But along the way, I'm going to be stopping at little libraries and trying to find good books that I can read on the road. I'm really excited. And I'm going to really try to be more active on Instagram uh, so if anyone is interested in kind of keeping up with where the sleepy podcast is in the country uh, you can find me on Instagram at sleepy underscore podcast I'll post photos along the way um, you can see the little tiny home that I'm living in and the amazing purple mattress that I have uh, installed in the back uh, I'm so excited so if you do want to keep up with the trip and say hey, you can follow me on Instagram at Sleepy Podcast. And just again, for anyone who's listening who is a patron of the show, I cannot thank you enough for doing that because after a year and a half of making this podcast, uh, your support along with just thousands and thousands of listeners that allow me to make um, some money off this show by getting advertisements um, this is what is allowing me to travel I'll be doing other radio freelance work um, along the way to um, continue making an income but I can't tell you how um, important your support has been if you are a donator on Patreon it really means so so much to me and I hope that I can uh, keep sending you awesome things from the road and that you still get as much out of the show as you did when you decided to donate. So, honestly, 
humbly. Thank you very much. All right. That is enough of me babbling. But just know that the Sleepy Podcast is officially mobile and headed across the country, headed south from Vermont next week. And to start off our maiden voyage, it might be appropriate to read Billy Budd by Herman Melville, the story of the sailor shipping off to sea. So, now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes and let me read to you. Billy Bud, Chapter One. In the time before steamships, or then more frequently than now, a stroller along the docks of any considerable seaport would occasionally have his attention arrested by a group of bronzed mariners, man of war's men, or merchant sailors in holiday attire ashore on liberty. In certain instances, They would flank, or, like a bodyguard, quite surround some superior figure of their own class, moving along with them like Aldebaran among the lesser lights of his constellation. That signal object was the handsome sailor of the less prosaic time alike of the military and merchant navies. With no perceptible trace of vainglorious about him, Rather, with the offhand effectiveness of natural regality, he seemed to accept the spontaneous homage of his shipmates. In some cases, a bit of a nautical merit in setting forth his person ashore, the handsome sailor of the period in question evinced nothing of the dandified Billy de Dam, an amusing character all but extinct now, but occasionally to be encountered in a form yet amusing in the original at the tailor of the boats on a tempestuous Erie Canal, or more likely vaporing in the groggeries along the towpath. Invariably proficient in his perilous calling, he was also more or less of a mighty boxer, a wrestler, who was strength and beauty. Tales of his prowess were recited, Ashore he was the champion, afloat the spokesman, on every suitable occasion always foremost. Close reefing topsails in a gale, there he was, astride the weather yard arm in, foot in the Flemish horse as stirrup, both hands tugging at the earring as at a bridle, and very much the attitude of young Alexander curbing the fiery Bucephalus. A superb figure, Tossed up as by the horns of Taurus against the thunderous sky, cheerily hallooing to the strenuous file along the spar. The moral nature was seldom out of keeping with the physical make, indeed, except as toned by the former 
the comeliness and power, always attractive in masculine conjunction, hardly could have drawn the sort of honest homage the handsome sailor in some examples received from his less gifted associates. Such a cenosure, at least in aspect, and something such too in nature, though with important variations made apparent as the story proceeds, was well-connived Billy Bud, or Baby Bud, as more familiarly, under circumstances hereafter, to be given he at last came to be called, age 21, a foretopman of the British fleet with the close of the last decade of the 18th century. It was not very long prior to the time of the narration that follows that he had entered the king's service, having been impressed on the narrowed seas from a homeward-bound English merchantman into a 74-hour-bound HMS Indomitable, which ship, as was not unusual in those hurried days, having been obliged to put to sea short of her proper complement of men. Plump upon Billy at first sight in the gangway, the boarding officer of Lieutenant Ratcliffe pounced, even before the merchantman's crew was formally mustered on the quarterdeck of his deliberate inspection, and him only he elected. For rather, it was because the other men were ranged before him, showed to ill advantage after Billy, or whether he had some scruples in the view of the merchantman being rather short-handed. However it might be, the officer contented himself with his first spontaneous choice. To the surprise of the ship's company, though much to the lieutenant's satisfaction, Billy made no demur. But indeed, any demur would have been as idle as the protest of a goldfinch popped into a cage. Noting this uncomplaining acquiescence, all but cheerful one might say, the shipmates turned a surprised glance of silent reproach at the sailor. The shipmaster was one of those worthy mortals found in every vocation, even the humbler ones, the sort of person whom everybody agrees in calling a respectable man. And nor so strange to report as it may appear to be, though a plowman of the troubled waters, lifelong contending with the intractable elements, there was nothing this honest soul at heart loved better than simple peace and quiet. For the rest, he was fifty or thereabouts, a little inclined to copulence, a prepossessing face, unwhiskered, and of an agreeable color, a rather full face, humanely intelligent in expression. On a fair day with a fair wind and all going well, a certain musical chime in his voice seemed to be the veritable, unobstructed outcome of the innermost man. He had much prudence, much conscientiousness, and there were occasions where these virtues were the cause of overmuch disquietude in him. On a passage so long as his craft was in any proximity to land, no sleep for Captain Graveling. He took to heart those serious responsibilities not so heavily borne by some shipmasters, 
Now while Billy Budd was down in the forecastle getting his kit together, the indomitable lieutenant, burly and bluff, no wise disconcerted by Captain Graveling's omitting to proffer the customary hospitalities on an occasion so unwelcome to him, an omission simply caused by preoccupation of thought, unceremoniously invited himself into the cabin and also to a flask from the spirit locker, a receptacle which his experienced eye instantly discovered. In fact, he was one of those sea dogs in whom all the hardship and peril of naval life and the great prolonged wars of his time never impaired the natural instinct for sensuous enjoyment. His duty he always faithfully did, but duty is sometimes a dry obligation, and he was for irrigating its aridity whensoever possible with a fertilizing decoction of strong waters. For the cabin's proprietor, there was nothing left but to play the part of the enforced host with whatever grace and alacrity were practicable. As necessary adjuncts to the flask, he silently placed tumbler and water jug before the irrepressible guest. But excusing himself from partaking just then, he dismally watched the embarrassed officer deliberately diluting his grog a little and tossing it off in three swallows, pushing the empty tumbler away, yet not so far as to be beyond easy reach, at the same time settling himself in his seat and smacking his lips with high satisfaction, looking straight at the host. These proceedings over, the master broke the silence, and there lurked a rueful reproach in the tone of his voice. Lieutenant, you are going to take away my best man from me, the jewel of him. Yes, I know, rejoined the other, immediately drawing back the tumbler preliminary to replenishing. Yes, I know. Sorry. Beg pardon, but you don't understand, Lieutenant. See here now. Before I shipped that young fellow, my forecastle was a rat pit of quarrels. It was black times, I tell you, aboard the rights here. I was worried to that degree my pipe had no comfort for me. But Billy came, and it was like a Catholic priest striking peace in an Irish shindy. Not that he preached to them or said or did anything in particular, but a virtue went out of him, sugaring the sour ones. They took to him like hornets to treacle. All but the buffer of the gang, the big shaggy chap, with the fire-red whiskers. He indeed, out of envy, perhaps, of the newcomer, and thinking such a sweet and pleasant fellow, as he mockingly designated him to the others, could hardly have the spirit of a gamecock, must needs bestir himself in trying to get up an ugly row with him. Billy forebore with him and reasoned with him in a pleasant way. He's something like myself, Lieutenant, to whom I like a quarrel is hateful but nothing, sir. So in the second dog watch, one day the red whiskers in presence of the others, under pretense of showing Billy just whence a sirloin steak was cut, for the fellow had once been a butcher, insultingly gave him a dig under the ribs. Quick as lightning, Billy let fly his arm, 
I dare say he never meant to do quite as much as he did. But anyhow, he gave the burly fool a terrible drubbing. It took about half a minute, I should think. And Lord bless you, the lover was astonished at the celerity. And will you believe it, Lieutenant? The Red Whiskers now really loves Billy. Loves him. Or is the biggest hypocrite that ever I heard of. But they all love him. Some of them do his washing. Darn his old trousers for him. The carpenter is at odds, making a pretty little chest of drawers for him. Anybody will do anything for Billy Bud. And it's the happy family here. But now, Lieutenant, if that young fellow goes, I know how it'll be aboard the rights. Not again very soon shall I, coming up from dinner, lean over to the captain, smoking a quiet pipe. No, not very soon again, I think. My lieutenant, you are going to take away the jewel of him. You are going to take away my peacemaker. And with that, the good soul had really some ado in checking the rising sob. Well, said the officer, who had listened with amused interest to all of this, and now waxing merry with his tipple. Well, blessed are the peacemakers, especially the fighting peacemakers, and such are the seventy-four beauties, some of which you see poking their noses out of the portholes of yonder warship, lying to for me, pointing through the cabin window at the indomitable. But courage, don't look so downhearted, man. Why, I pledge you in advance the royal approbation. Rest assured that His Majesty will be delighted to know that in a time when his hard tack is not sought for by sailors with such avidity as should be, a time also when some shipmasters privily resent the borrowing from them a tar or two for the service. His Majesty, I say, will be delighted to learn that one shipmaster at least cheerfully surrenders to the king, the flower of his flock, a sailor who with equal loyalty makes no dissent. But where's my beauty? Ah, looking through the cabin's open door, here he comes, and by Jove, lugging along his chest, Apollo with his portmanteau, my man, stepping out next to him, you can't take that big box aboard a warship. The boxes there are mostly shot boxes. Put your duds in a bag, lad. Boot and saddle for the cavalrymen. Bag and hammock for the man of war's man. The transfer from chest to bag was made. And after seeing his man into the cutter and following him down, the lieutenant pushed off from the rights of man. That was the merchant ship's name, though by her master and crew abbreviated in sailor fashion into the rights. The hard-headed Dundee owner was a staunch admirer of Thomas Paine, whose book in rejoinder to Burke's arraignment of the French Revolution had been published for some time and had gone everywhere. In christening his vessel after the title of Paine's volume, the man of Dundee was something like its contemporary shipowner. Stephen Gerard of Philadelphia, whose sympathies alike with his native land and its liberal philosophers, he evinced 
by naming his ships after Voltaire, Diderot, and so forth. But now, when the boat swept under the merchantman's stern, an officer and oarsman were noting, some bitterly and others with a grin, the name emblazoned there. Just then, it was that the new recruit jumped up from the bow of the coxswain and directed him to sit, and waving his hat to his silent shipmate sorrowfully looking over him from the taffrail, bade the lad the genial goodbye. Then making a salutation as to the ship herself, and goodbye to you, old rights of man. Down, sir, roared the lieutenant, instantly assuming all the rigor of his rank, though with difficulty repressing a smile. To be sure, Billy's action was a terrible breach of naval decorum, but in that decorum he had never been instructed, in consideration of which the lieutenant would hardly have been so energetic in reproof, but for the concluding farewell to the ship. This he rather took as meant to convey a covert sally on the new recruit's part, a sly slur and impressment in general, and that of himself in special. And yet, more likely, if satire was in effect, it was hardly so by intention for Billy, though happily endowed with the gaiety of high health, youth, and a free heart was yet by no means of a satirical turn. The will to do it and the sinister dexterity were alike wanting. To deal in double meanings and insinuations of any sort was quite foreign to his nature. As to his enforced enlistment, that seemed to take pretty much as he was wont to take any vicissitude of weather. Like the animals, though no philosopher he was, without knowing it, practically a fatalist. And it may be that he rather liked this adventurous turn in his affairs, which promised an opening into novel scenes and martial excitements. Aboard the indomitable, our merchant sailor was forthwith rated as an able seaman and assigned to the starboard watch of the foretop. He was soon at home in the service, not at all disliked for his unpretentious good looks and a sort of genial, happy-go-lucky air. No merrier man in his mess, in marked contrast to certain other individuals included, like himself, among the impressed portion of the ship's company. For these, when not actively employed, were sometimes, and more particularly, in the last dog watch, when the drawing near of twilight-induced reverie apt to fall into a saddish mood which at some partook of sullenness. But they were not so young as our four topmen, and though so few of them must have known a hearth of some sort. Others may have had wives and children left, too probably, in uncertain circumstances, and hardly any though must have acknowledged kith and kin. While for Billy, as will shortly be seen, his entire family was practically invested in himself. Chapter 2 
Thornton made foretop and was well received in the top and on the gun decks. Hardly here was he that Snowsher, he had previously been among those minor ships' companies of the Merchant Marine, with which companies only had he hitherto consorted. He was young, and despite his all but fully developed frame and aspect looked even younger than he really was, owing to a lingering adolescent expression in the as yet smooth face, all but feminine impurity of natural complexion, but where, thanks to his sea-going, the lily was quite suppressed, and the rose had some ado visibly to flush through the tan. To one essentially such a novice in the complexities of factitious life, the abrupt transition from his former and simpler sphere to the ampler and more knowing world of a great warship, this might well have abashed him had there been any conceit or vanity in his composition. Among her miscellaneous multitude, the indomitable mustered several individuals who, however inferior in grade, were of no common natural stamp. Sailors, more signally susceptible of that air which continuous martial discipline and repeated presence in battle can in some degree impart, even to the average man. As the handsome sailor, Billy Budd's position aboard the 74 was something analogous to that of a rustic beauty, transplanted from the provinces and brought into competition with the high-born dames of the court. But this change of circumstances he scarce noted. As little did he observe that something about him provoked an ambiguous smile in one or two harder faces among the blue jackets. Nor less unaware was he of the peculiar, favorable effect his person and demeanor had upon more intelligent gentlemen of the quarterdeck. Nor could this well have been otherwise. Cast in a mold peculiar to the finest physical examples of those Englishmen in whom the Saxon strain would seem not at all to partake of any Norman or other admixture, he showed in face that humane look of reposeful good nature, which the Greek sculptor in some instances gave to his heroic strongman Hercules. But this again was subtly modified by another and pervasive quality. The ear, small and shapely, the arch of the foot, the curve in the mouth and nostril, even the indurated hand died the orange tawny of the toucan's bill, a hand telling alike of the holliards and tar bucket, but above all, something in the mobile expression, in every chance attitude and movement, something suggestive of a mother eminently favored by love and the graces. All this strangely indicated in a lineage in direct contradiction to his lot. The mysteriousness here became less mysterious through a matter-of-fact elicited when Billy, at the capstan, was being formally mustered into the service. Asked by the officer, a small, brisk little gentleman, as it chanced, among other questions, his place of birth, he replied, Please, sir, I don't know. Don't know where you were born. Who was your father? 
God knows, sir. Struck by the straightforward simplicity of these replies, the officer next asked, Do you know anything about your beginning? No, sir, but I have heard that I was found in a pretty silk-lined basket hanging one morning from the knocker of a good man's door in Bristol. Found, say you. Well, throwing back his head and looking up and down the new recruit, well, it turns out to have been a pretty good find. Hope they'll find some more like you, my man. The fleet sadly needs them. Yes, Billy Bud was a foundling, but presumable by blow, and evidently no noble one. Noble descent was as evident in him as in a blood horse. For the rest, with little or no sharpness of faculty, or any trace of wisdom of the serpent, nor yet quite a dove, he possessed that kind and degree of intelligence going along with the unconventional rectitude of a sound human creature, one to whom not yet has been proffered the questionable apple of knowledge. He was illiterate. He could not read, but he could sing. And like the illiterate nightingale was sometimes the composer of his own song. Of self-consciousness he seemed to have little or none, or about as much as we may reasonably impute to a dog of St. Bernard's breed. Habitually living with the elements and knowing little more of the lamb than as a beach, or rather that portion of the terraqueous globe providently set apart for dance houses, doxies and tapsters, in short, what sailors call a fiddler's green. His simple nature remained unsophisticated by those moral obliquities which are not in every case incompatible with the manufacturable thing known as respectability. But our sailors, frequenters of fiddler's green, without vices, no, but less often than with landsmen, to their vices so-called partake the crookedness of heart, seeming less to proceed from viciousness than exuberance of vitality after long constraint, frank manifestations in accordance with natural law. By his original constitution, aided by the cooperating influences of his lot, Billy, in many respects, was little more than a sort of upright barbarian much such perhaps as Adam presumably might have been here the urbane serpent wriggled himself into his company. And here be it submitted that apparently going to corroborate the doctrine of man's fall, a doctrine now popularly ignored, it is observable that were certain virtues pristine and unadulterate peculiarly characterize anybody in the external uniform of civilization they will upon scrutiny seem not to be derived from custom or convention, but rather be out of keeping with these, as if indeed exceptionally transmitted from a period prior to Cain's city and citified man. The character marked by such qualities has to an unvitiated taste and untampered with flavor like that of berries, while the man thoroughly civilized, even in a fair specimen of the breed, 
as to the same moral palate a questionable smack of a compounded wine. To any stray inheritor of these primitive qualities found, like Caspar Hauser, wandering days in any Christian capital of our time, the good-natured poet's famous invocation near two thousand years ago, the good rustic out of his latitude in the Rome of Caesar's still appropriately holds. Honest and poor, faithful in word and thought, what has the Fabian to the city brought? Though our handsome sailor had as much of masculine beauty as one can expect anywhere to see, nevertheless, like the beautiful woman in one of Hawthorne's minor tales, there was just one thing amiss in him. No visible blemish, indeed, as with the lady, no, but an occasional liability to a vocal defect. Though in the hour of elemental uproar or peril, he was everything that a sailor should be. Yet under sudden provocation of strong heart feeling, his voice otherwise singularly musical, as if expressive of the harmony within, was apt to develop an organic hesitancy. In fact, more or less of a stutter, or even worse. In this particular, Billy was a striking instance that the arch interferer, the envious marplot of Eden, still has more or less to do with every human consignment to this planet of Earth. In every case, one way or another, he is sure to slip in his little card, as much as to remind us, I too have a hand here. The avowal of such an imperfection in the handsome sailor should be evidence not alone that he is not presented as a conventional hero, but also that the story in which he is the main figure is no romance. At the time of Billy Budd's arbitrary enlistment into the indomitable, a ship was on her way to join the Mediterranean fleet. No long time elapsed before the unction was effected. As one of the fleet, the 74 participated in its movements, though at times, on account of her superior sailing qualities, in the absence of frigate, dispatched on separate duty as a scout, and at times on less temporary service. But with all this, the story had little concernment. Restricted, as it is, to the inner life of one particular ship and the career of an individual sailor. It was the summer of 1797. In April of that year had occurred the commotion at Spithead, followed in May by a second and yet more serious outbreak in the fleet at the north. The latter is known, and without exaggeration in the epitaph, as the Great Mutiny. It was indeed a demonstration more menacing to England than the contemporary manifestos and conquering and proselytizing armies of the French Directory. To the British Empire, the Nor Mutiny was what a strike in the Fire Brigade would be to London, threatened by General Arson. In a crisis where the kingdom might well have anticipated the famous signal, and some years later published along a naval line of battle, what it was that upon occasion England expected of Englishmen. That was the time when at the mastheads of the three deckers and seventy-fours moored in her own roadstead, a fleet 
the right arm of a power, an all but soul free conservative one of old world, the blue jackets, to be numbered by thousands, ran up with huzzas, the British colors of the Union and cross wiped out. By that cancellation transmuting the flag of founded law and freedom defiant into the enemy's red meteor of unbridled and unbounded revolt. Reasonable discontent growing out of practical grievances and the fleet had been ignited into a rational combustion. And as by live sinners blown across the channel from France in flames, The event converted into irony for a time those spirited strains of Dibden. As a songwriter, no mean auxiliary to the English government at the European conjuncture. Strain celebrating, among other things, the patriotic devotion of the British tar. And as for my life, tis the king's. Such an episode in the island's grand naval story or naval historians naturally abridge. One of them, G.P.R. James, candidly acknowledging that fain would he pass it over, did not impartiality forbid fastidiousness. And yet his mention is less a narration than a reference, having to do hardly at all with details. Nor are these readily to be found in the libraries. Like some other events in every age befalling states everywhere, including America, the Great Mutiny was of such character that national pride, along with views of policy, would fain shade it off into the historical background. Such events cannot be ignored, but there is a considerate way of historically treating them. If a well-constituted individual refrains from blazoning on a miss or calamitous, and his family, a nation in the like circumstance may without reproach be equally discreet. Though after parleyings between government and the ringleaders, the concessions by the former, as to some glaring abuses, the first uprising, that its spithead, with difficulty was put down, or matters for the time pacified, Yet at the north, the unforeseen renewal of the insurrection on a yet larger scale and emphasized in the conferences that ensued by demands deemed by the authorities not only inadmissible but aggressively insolent, indicated, if the red flag did not sufficiently do so, what was the spirit animating the men. Final suppression, however, there was, but only made possible, perhaps, by the unswerving loyalty of the Marine Corps and voluntary resumption of loyalty among influential sections of the crews. To some extent, the Norm Mutiny may be regarded as analogous to the distempering eruption of contagious fever in a frame constitutionally sound in which it not throws it off. And at all events of these thousands of mutineers were some of the tars who not so very long afterwards, whether wholly prompted thereto by patriotism or pugnacious instinct, or by both, helped to win a coronet for Nelson at the Nile, and the naval crown of crowns for him at Trafalgar. To the mutineers, those battles, 
and especially Trafalgar, were a plenary absolution and a grand one for all that goes to make up scenic naval display, heroic magnificence in arms. Those battles, especially Trafalgar, stand unmatched in human annals. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.